Welcome to the Mighty Littles Podcast. Hi everyone, it's Anna, your host for the Mighty Littles Podcast. On today's episode, I am talking to Emily Vernon. She actually had two babies in the NICU. Her son was born at 33 weeks and spent a couple of weeks in the NICU with a relatively uncomplicated stay. And her daughter was born at 23 weeks and ended up in the NICU for about four and a half months. And I think Emily does a really nice job of summarizing what those hospital stays were and giving some great advice for NICU parents. Do your research, advocate for your baby, don't isolate yourself, don't compare your journey and your baby to somebody else's because they just aren't the same. This episode with Emily is going to kind of start off a month of tiny baby podcasts. So I have several other podcasts that I'm going to lump together with with this one um, and bring it out to you over the next three to four weeks. Kaz Cares uh, is a 22-week baby. Uh, Savannah Lintz Her son, Lucas, was born at 22 weeks, and then uh, Lizzie Smith's daughter was born at 23 weeks. And so those are going to be kind of the next upcoming podcast. So we'll kind of do a little little taste of what it's like to be a micropreemie over these next four weeks. I hope that whether you have a micropreemie or just a preemie or a big baby in the NICU, that you can gain some really good information about what it's like to be in the NICU for long periods of time from these podcasts and realize that these moms really, really fight and advocate for their kids and that these babies can do just wonderfully. I hope that you enjoy this podcast and I look forward to bringing you this little mini series on our mini micro preemies. Anna Zimmerman. Welcome to the Mighty Littles podcast today. I'm super excited to introduce Emily Vernon. She's here with us today about not one, but two of her babies that were in the NICU. She had a little boy at 33 weeks and a little girl at 23 weeks. Emily, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Why don't we start off by having you introduce yourself? Um, My name is Emily Vernon. I currently live in Oklahoma. And I have two children, an almost six-year-old, a two-year-old, and then I have a husband, and I am actually an occupational therapist as well. Why don't you tell us about your pregnancies and about your NICU stays? Um, because you had your 33-week little boy first, and yes. then with your second pregnancy, you had your 23-week little girl. So why don't you kind of talk us through your pregnancies and how the NICU stays were for you guys? Yeah, sure. I'll hit some highlights for both of them. So um, with my son, uh, we didn't think, you know, I was young. I was, well, I guess an older mom. I was like 28, 29 when I got pregnant with him. Um, And, you know, I was a healthy woman, no prior issues or anything. And we found out uh, fairly early on in the first trimester, I had a, um, uh, my uterus was cut in half with a septum. Um, And we didn't know that beforehand. And so he was growing in one half of a uterus, basically, and half of my uterus. Because later on, we found out the septum pretty much split it all the way down in half. Um, and so I thought that was maybe it. And then come to find out, I have a retroverted uterus or cervix, I guess it is, which is normal in most people. Well, with me, um, my uterus gets entrapped 
um, and called incarcerated uterus, where it basically gets stuck in my pelvis and it won't come out and forward like a typical uterus. It grows down and back. Um, so around 20 weeks with my son, I told my doctor, like, I feel like something's wrong. Like I feel off and thankfully had a good doctor. So he sent me to some specialist and they basically said, Oh, you have an incarcerated uterus, but we don't want to do anything. Cause I was right around 24 weeks and you're not showing symptoms. Like usually like you have bladder retention, all that stuff. I didn't have any of that. I had some pressure, but that was about it. Long story short. Uh, all of a sudden I'm going to Little Rock, which was in Arkansas, um, to see a maternal fetal medicine doctor and I was contracting and he was like, Oh, you're contracting. Like, Oh, I've been doing that for several weeks. So they admitted me and did this MRI and found out what was going on. And so I had a major surgery where they cut me, but probably about a 12 inch scar. They had to go in and flip him manually um, to where he was growing correctly because it could have had a uterine rupture if I would have kept going. So I stayed there for several weeks, came home around 28 weeks on modified bed rest, and then he pushed his foot through and broke my water at 33 weeks and had an emergency C-section with him. Um, and his NICU stay was draining but it was only two weeks because he had a couple apnea episodes. He did really great feeding. He breastfed from like the second day. He was five pounds. So he was big for a 33 weeker. Um, you know, I, we were very blessed with his easy NICU stay because fast forward a few years and we knew it was going to be um, high risk with my daughter. Um, we thought maybe it was just because of the septum kind of, you know, another thing was just a fluke. Well, 13 weeks, I had another incarcerated uterus with my daughter. So they fixed that, did nothing else. And I had every other week uh, cervix checks, cervix length checks. And they were fine, fine, fine. And then from one to two weeks later, I went from like two point something centimeters to basically nothing. And they, when I had that appointment, my husband was, didn't come with me because like oh you know they've been fine well i call them crying like oh my gosh i was like 21 weeks i believe and so they rushed me over to the hospital and pushed me over there and um the maternal fetal person came over and did a check uh the next day because they did admit me because i was contracting and i didn't even know it again so apparently i contract and and don't know it yeah um which is not helpful when you're high risk so when they came over Um, you know, I remember saying to the maternal fetal medicine doctor, like, you know, they were checking her out and I said, you know, she's perfect. I might lose my perfect baby girl because I, my body is failing her. Thankfully, they did not send me home. So at our hospital, I don't, I, it was a miracle because I think most hospitals probably would have sent me home. Um, but they just pretty much laid me almost in Trendelenburg, so where my head was kind of facing down a little bit. I had a catheter. I could not get up to go to the bathroom. Right. So um, that was interesting, to say the least. (laughs) That has Um, to be so hard to be worried about your baby girl, feeling like your your body is failing you, not able to get up to go to the bathroom, afraid to poop because you have to push, and you don't want your baby to you know, come out Yep. and on mag, which makes you feel 
awful all at the same time. Yes. Yeah. It was, it was not fun. I remember one time I was telling my husband when they first put me on mag, cause I was on my mag with my son too, with all that stuff. Cause I didn't know if he was going to come. I could not open like a chapstick thing. Like I had to be fed because I was so, cause on mag, you just feel so weak and just, Oh, it was, yeah, it was, it was awful. So their plan was to keep me on mag the whole rest of my pregnancy. I was like, okay, uh, that'll be great. <laughs> wow. Um, yay me. Yay me. And they did have the um, neonatologist come in with her, obviously, you know, a couple of days after I was there, I still hadn't given birth. So they did come in and, you know, he was honest about the vitality, the viability of a birth of that. And I'm an occupational therapist, you know, I'm in the medical field. I know roughly what it is. And I've worked with a lot of kids with cerebral palsy and other things. And I, you know, I knew. Um, and so we told him we wanted him to do as much as he could without making her suffer. Like if she was going to fight, we wanted to help her fight. Right. But if she wasn't going to fight, we didn't want to push it beyond what would be humane, I guess. Um, thankfully, um, you know, a couple of weeks later, I started bleeding. Um, and so doctor came in and was like, it's time. This is different. Like my contractions, I could feel them now, but these were different. Like these are actually like labor contractions and stuff. And I remember him coming. I was like, no, 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 no. Like I was throwing a fit. Like I was like, no, I don't want to. It's not time. It's not time because I, I mean, I was 23 weeks in two days, I think. Like I just hit over that 23 week mark and it was scary. And with both my babies, they knocked me out. So I never got to have any kind of birthing experience with any of them. Um, and they're both emergency C-sections. So when you wake up from that and you wonder if your babies are alive, especially with my daughter, Eleanor, who was a 23 weeker, like you're in pain and you wake up and I just remember asking my husband, like, is she alive? Right. And he's, She's alive. She's in the NICU. Obviously she is on a vent. Um, so, you know, that wasn't fun at all. Um, I didn't see her until the next day. Okay. Uh, just cause I was on a lot of medicine and I barely could keep my eyes open <laughs> and stuff. So I did get to see her the next day and it was surreal. I mean, she was just a one pound, 11 ounce baby on a vent with very thin translucent skin um, and her NICU stay was four and a half months. Okay. Um, she went through the gamut. She was on the vent for three, three and a half weeks. And then she went to the CPAP and BiPAP machines. Um, she had, she did on her second or third day of life. Second or third day of life, she um, had to have the PDA ligation where she had a large hole in her heart, which was... Um, not allowing her blood pressure to regulate and all this other stuff. So they fixed the, the heart and that helped tremendously with her vent settings and blood pressure. Um, and thankfully she never had a single infection. She, um, we were really worried about neck mm-hmm. um, for her. And thankfully I was able to pump and she got colostrum and all that stuff, you know, very slowly, but, we didn't have any issues with that. <laughs> she was off all ventilation and oxygen. I think by 
two, two and a half months, I want to say. It was right around Easter is when she got in the nasal cannula. And she was born in February. So it was like a month and a half where she just had the nasal cannula. Which all things considered for a 23-week baby, you know, you have the PDA ligation to close the blood vessel that's outside the heart that needs to close that can cause us trouble sometimes. But it sounds like a pretty unremarkable first couple of months of a hospital stay considering how early she was. Yes. Yes. Considering what could have gone wrong. And she did have um, bilateral grade two uh, brain bleeds, which eventually did um, resolve itself. She didn't need any intervention. And I thought at one point maybe she had a PVL, but it ended up not being anything. Um, She did have the biggest thing with her, you know, she had some, fluctuations with her kidneys and you know different things throughout and then the other biggest thing she had was she had severe rop retinopathy of prematurity she had stage three and partial retinal detachment on one eye she started having it so she had two laser eye surgeries and the avacid injections like towards the end of her stay um and then you know (laughs) Feeding was always is always the longest and most tedious thing ever. Because you're at the end and you've been there for like three and a half, four months. You're like, please just eat. <laughs> I always tell parents the beginning is scary because you know, you're 23, 24 weeks. There's so many hurdles that we have to overcome. We don't know what's going to happen. The middle is kind of fun. You get to see them grow and get bigger and you kind of check off these um, boxes of, oh, we need to get extubated. Oh, we need to gain weight. Oh, we need to get onto full feeds. Oh, we need to graduate to an open crib. And then comes the feeding. And it is the most infuriating test of patience for parents that I have yes. ever known because there's nothing you can do no. to make it go faster, right? Like it's totally up to Eleanor. It's totally up to the kid and you can try a different bottle or a different nipple and you can yep. try to breastfeed and you can use a, a nipple shield and like there's all these little things, sideline position, whatever. We can do these little things to help them with it, but you can't actually make it go any faster than what your child is going to let it, let it do. No. And she was doing what was really frustrating is she was doing really great. And because I'm an occupational therapist, I know a little bit about, you know, some of the stuff with feeding and she was doing really great. And then once her suck got stronger, I noticed, I knew not notice she was aspirating. And so I requested a swallow study and she was aspirating. So then it was almost like 10 steps back because then we had to thicken her formula and then trying to figure out the thickening with, I think we just did it with cereal and the new, a new nipple. It's like, no, we had to go all the way backwards because then it would just get, she'd get frustrated because she couldn't get it out of the nipple because it would get stuck or whatever. So eventually they just did, I told the doctor, I said, I really think, that she could do it if you pull the in, the the tube out and let me do. I think they called it like a a challenge, a like, hunger challenge. Yeah, a hunger challenge. And so we would just do in our hunger cue. So I was, I mean, I was at the hospital all day every day anyway. I just went home to sleep usually. But those last three days during that challenge, I was there twenty four hours. You know, I went to go eat lunch or whatever. But I would I would feed her on her hunger based on her hunger cues and she finally did it 
And all of a sudden it was like, I don't know when you're going to go home. Maybe we need a feeding tube to completely doing fine. So we got discharged and it was like, whoa, well, that was fast. How, <laughs> how did it feel to go home? It was kind of surreal. So we did have my son who was a little bit older, but thankfully we kind of like was able to keep him in daycare. Um, so keep his routine. And then my in-laws helped a lot on the weekends because my husband was still finishing his grad school at that time. Um, so, uh, it was, you know, it was a challenge, but it was nice. You know, it was, it was a lot at first, but she didn't come home on anything. She didn't come home on oxygen. She didn't come home on a feeding tube. Um, she does have a feeding tube now. Um, so tell tell me about that. How, how did you go from going home without a feeding tube to now having a feeding tube? What what were kind of the steps in that process? It's kind of, sometimes I, I think about it a lot. And cause she was doing really great. So she came home like mid-June. And she did great that first five or six months. And then that January, she got sick. Um, later on, they found out it was a UTI. Um, because she was gaining weight fine. And then that month, she was just vomiting nonstop. She started having a major oral aversion. Um, and then we finally got a GI referral. And she basically would only eat an ounce, ounce and a half at a time. And then she would start gagging when she saw me make the bottle. Um, she always required a shield when she breastfed. Um, and then we would always supplement with her bottles and the NeoSure is, I think, what we put in it. Mm-hmm. It's a special um, formula for babies that were preterm that has some extra calories. But even more importantly, it has extra calcium and phosphorus for their bones, as well as extra protein so that they can get all the stuff that they missed out on in that last trimester uh, where they can't kind of leach it out of you. Right. And so she did that. And then we got her put on a really special formula um for baby so i had all this breast milk that i had pumped i'm like thinking she could have it for two years and we ended up not giving her any more which was a little devastating and i still have some breast and breast milk because i just can't get rid of it um so she went on a super called neo kate it's just a super special formula Yep. It's essentially all broken down so it's individual amino acids as opposed to complex proteins um so she did a little bit better on that, but basically she was stuck at 14 pounds for three or four months. Um, they did an endoscopy, which is where they stick a thing down their throat to look. And she has um, eosinophilic gastroenteritis, which is fairly rare. Um, so they decided because she was failing to thrive and she wasn't growing at this point to give her the feeding tube. Um, she did a lot better with the feeding tube, less vomiting. Um, and she, you know, she just wasn't having that, give her her oral aversion a break, I guess. Um, it has really helped. She still doesn't eat anything by mouth, doesn't chew or swallow anything. Um, we are in feeding therapy for her. Um, it, it's, she's made progress, but it's, and as an occupational therapist, this was one of my like <laughs> biggest fears. So when she came home without one, I was like, yes. I don't have an oral, you know, a daughter with an oral aversion because they're so difficult. And now she has one. <laughs> and so she's had her feeding tube for about a year now. Um, and we do a blended diet now. After she turned a year old, we started doing a blended diet. And she's thrived on it. She is 
Um, so she's about 24 pounds now. Uh, she has no developmental delays, which is astonishing. Uh, she talks in three, four word sentences. She walks, runs, tries to jump. <laughs> she thinks she jumps. Um, other than the feeding stuff that has that she has going on, she really is doing fantastic. I cannot complain whatsoever with her development. That's awesome. That's truly awesome. Um, so when you had your son in the NICU, you know, I hear a lot of parents say, oh, we had a baby in the NICU. Uh, this is one. I'm not going to have any more. We're done. This is like this is a no-go. And then invariably, I get messages from parents and families saying, hey, guess what? We're pregnant and um, yeah, wish us luck or whatever. Tell me about kind of having your first baby in the NICU the second time around. Was it hard to say, okay, we're going to try this again, knowing all the complications you had the first time? And then once you ended up in the NICU, do you think it helped or hurt or was indifferent the fact that you'd already done it before we knew so with my first one we thought i thought the biggest thing was the septum um and that's why he came early because he run he ran out of room basically is kind of what my thought was right um and but we still knew it was high risk um because of all the stuff we had with him um so we did talk a lot in depth with my new because we moved in the process between baby one and baby two, we moved to a different state. Um, so we gave him all the rundown what had happened with the first one. And so we were kind of prepared for it, I guess. And so we did some extra stuff like the bi-weekly uh, checks, cervix checks, because I have um, a rare genetic condition uh, with where my collagen and stuff uh has more laxicity, which is why they think my uterus does what it does. Um, so we are somewhat prepared, but I don't really think anything prepares you to have a 23-weeker because, and I knew my son's was a very easy NICU stay compared to others, as well as, you know, it was just a super easy one. Um, so I think it was kind of more indifferent. I think I didn't know what to expect with a 23-weeker. Um, I just knew there was lots of things that could go wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and it was a really long, really long stay. Yeah, they, the those earlier babies, the 22, 23, 24 weekers, those hospital stays can get very long. Um, you feel like you're there forever. Well, and when with my daughter, I, I, I had it in my head like, oh, no, she's going to go to at least 30 weeks. Like that was a fluke. Like, you know, whatever. So now we know like my cervix literally cannot handle the weight because of my uh, disorder. And so collagen thing. And so um, I remember my doctor OB's like, okay, now if you want to try for a third one, let me know like way in advance. We'll do like a super surclage thing. I go, I'm done. Like <laughs> I have a 33 weeker and a 23 weeker. I don't need to have any more, any earlier. We're good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I can understand that, right? Like you have your two kids who seem to be doing just wonderful let's not push our luck for, for a third. Yeah. And I mean, I've always wanted like more kids, but, and we were always kind of like, well, let's do it again. Like that was kind of a weird, never seen before type thing. We'll do one more and see how it goes. Well, obviously she was born even earlier. And we're like, nope, we're good. So what do you wish 
you know, like as so as an occupational therapist, you have some knowledge of the NICU and feeding difficulties and developmental care and all those kind of things. But going into the NICU stay, if you could now yourself now with all the experience that you have now go back and tell yourself something then, what would you what would you tell you tell yourself? What do you wish that you had known before these NICU experiences? I think to do your own like research, like, you know, we had some really great neonatologists in both situations. I think we butted heads with one of our neonatologists and in, in, in our long stay with our daughter. Um, but you know, no one knows everything. And so we really did our research before we made decisions as much as possible. Obviously there were a few decisions where we had to make it fairly quickly um, and we just had to listen to the doctor and trust them. Um, but at the same time, you know, you it is your child and you are really what you're the one that's got to take care of them down the road. So I think being educated about your decisions and why you would make a decision or not make a decision, um, to do a procedure is, is important. And I, and I say that not to like, you know, put off the doctors but you know your child even when they're that little like I knew Eleanor was like she was feisty from the beginning like she pulled out her vent tube you know at one point and she just it's always on her own time and as if you know that already like use that intuition and and go with it for you know for the betterment of their stay and for you too (laughs) well and I I think it's very true parents are with their babies all the time. And as a neonatologist, I'll go in. Sorry. Um, I'll go in. But I, if your baby's doing well, I'm only going to see you for 10 or 15 minutes. And if your baby's mm-hmm. not doing well, then I'm in there for Mama. lots of periods of time. But parents know their kids best. And it is important for you to do your research and be educated and know what you're making decisions about. This is your baby and you should know exactly what's happening with your baby. And so please ask me questions and then give me a chance to say, okay, these are the reasons that I want to do what I want to do. And I hear what you're saying, but... How about we compromise here? Or, hey, I'll give you all these other things, but I can't give you this. So what do you think is the single best way that people were able to support you during your NICU stays? It was really, you know, it was really hard because I don't think people knew how to react to it. I think it was really hard for people to know how to react. We were... We actually didn't tell a whole bunch of people that we were pregnant with our second pregnancy again anyway because, you know, with our son and everything like that. So I think people didn't know how to react. And we didn't post a lot on, like, social media about her. Like, we would kind of give some updates here and there. But unless they were, like, really close friends, like, we didn't talk to them every day about it or whatever. Um, But it was really nice for people to you know, reach out, give some gift cards because I was at the hospital all day long (laughs) and we couldn't just like bring in all this food and stuff. Like we did have our individual rooms with her stay. Um, but I couldn't like, I had to go, go out and eat something or go to the cafeteria or something like that. So like, um, 
coffee was really good. <laughs> I love coffee. So like gift cards and stuff like that was really great. Or really just asking how she was doing. I think sometimes people don't know what to say. You yes. know, like if I ask you how she's doing, well, what if what you say back to me makes me uncomfortable? Which I, right. I realize how crazy that sounds, but it's the same when a family member dies or there's some really big accident. Mm-hmm. When you when you ask somebody a question, you have to be ready for what comes back at you. And so to ask, hey, how's your baby doing? When yeah. it's so kind of plus minus tenuous what's going to happen, gosh, what happens if you say something back that then is is hard? Then what do we do? Right. Yeah. And I do think, you know, that was definitely part of it. Um, and I did, and I joined some Facebook groups, um, which actually re- was really helpful because, you know, we didn't know anybody. And I'm the only one in my family. We had three girls and I'm the only one that's ever had any complications. And especially I had serious complications with both my pregnancies. Um, and so they really tried. I have two sisters, you know, they really tried to understand and everything, but it was nice to have a couple of Facebook groups. And I actually still talked to one of the moms who we both had 23 weekers. They were only two weeks apart you know, we still talk. Um, and it's great to have someone that's been in your shoes that was walking in her, the same shoes as I was pretty much at the same time. Um, so that was really nice to get to ask other people who have been through it. Um, but we only had a couple of visitors. We were, we were pretty strict on like who came to visit her and all that kind of stuff. But I think just having people give cards and asking how she was despite the answer. So how do you think your NICU experiences changed you as a person or as a mom? Do you think it's altered your outlook on things or how you approach parenting at all? I think because we're very blessed that both of our kids developmentally are pretty typical. Um, It hasn't necessarily changed how I parent, um, but I do think it makes me thankful for how well they're doing, especially Eleanor at 23 weeks. Um, You know, there could be a lot of stuff going on with her. And so I think it makes me just more grateful for how she's doing. And I don't nitpick on the things she's not doing. Like, I'm sad that she's not eating by mouth, but could it have been a whole lot worse? (laughs) Absolutely. So I think I'm just more grateful for for what I do have. Right. And, and, she'll, have. and she'll get there eventually, right? Like, right. Yeah. She can, she can learn to eat. What advice do you have for people that are in the NICU right now? I think, I, I think I was kind of answering that question a little bit earlier, like getting into some Facebook groups actually were, was really helpful for me. Um, I am a very social person though. So I tend to gravitate towards that. Um, and not isolating yourself. I think it's hard to not isolate yourself in that situation because you have so many things going on and no one really understands it at all, especially when you have a micro preemie. What have I not asked you about that you really want to share with people? I think that understanding that not every baby is going to be as uncomplicated as mine. Cause I feel, I do feel really, guilty sometimes when people compare babies so you know try not to compare it's really hard not to compare like how one baby even in the NICU like where you are 
and like like oh that that baby next to me is already feeding and they're born in the same day or that baby's gaining weight and mine's not i think that's one of the biggest thing is just to watch the comparison and even though it's hard as they develop um knowing that your your child is doing the best they can and that you know each situation is different well and i think that's the same for all parenting right so yeah there's such a range of development and everybody has their strengths and their weaknesses and comparison is the thief of joy like i truly believe if you're excited about what's happening with your child and the milestones that your child is meeting don't let somebody else's stage in life steal you of that joy because just because you're comparing so now all of a sudden that you've compared you're no longer excited about it but you were excited five minutes ago be proud of what you have and don't worry about where anybody else is yep yep and I think that is really hard especially when you have a preemie that can you know can have significant delays um my friend who I've met the Facebook group I remember she and I talk frequently and especially when they're in NICU like we said, if we could just combine them, like they, it would be perfect. You know, like Eleanor would have one thing and my friends baby would have another thing. And still to this day, like there are certain things that the other one's doing great at and, you know, Eleanor's kind of struggling or whatever. So it, it's just, if you can be truly like joyful for the other person, I think that's what's really important. And if you can't do that and you're just continuing to compare, then that may not be the best thing for you right it might not might not actually bring you into a mentally healthy place yes yeah what else do you want to share I think taking it one hour at a time sometimes and get out of the hospital I was there from you know eight or nine in the morning when when she was a little bit younger I would leave at like six because I mean she was in the the incubator thing all day long on events so there wasn't much I could do like I would do a little bit of her cares early on but she was very um touchy you know she she did not like to be touched they only touched her like twice a shift to do whatever they had to do um and then once as she got older I was there you know over 12 hours every day but it really was nice to like walk out of the hospital and walk around and take like it's okay and don't some people like when I would say I would go home to sleep like oh I don't know how you leave your baby I was like well I have to like I can't just be there 24 7 like she's getting the best care possible like I also have to take care of myself and like I said walk outside go get a bite to eat and come back and go sleep in your own bed if possible like I live pretty close to the hospital where she was or you know there's Ronald McDonald houses like go and eat the dinner there um go take some respite for yourself or you can't be there and do the best you can for your child yeah you have to take care of yourself in order to take care of your child and sometimes taking care of yourself is saying hey I need to be at the bedside from eight in the morning until eight at night um so it's not always leaving as is taking care of yourself but in that time where you're at the bedside 8 a.m to 8 p.m taking care of yourself can be just a walk around the block or a walk down the hallway to the coffee cart to get a snack and a treat so that you're Mm -hmm. eating and you're drinking and you're getting some fresh air too yes and i think that is important and and not to compare yourself to other parents like well that parent like we were blessed that i could be there 
you know, every day. And I know so many families can't do that. Like they either have other children at home. Cause like I said, my son was in daycare still. So I just took that time to go see Eleanor and spend time with Eleanor while he was in daycare. Cause that was important for him to keep his normal routine as well. Um, but not all families can do that. You know, a lot of moms are stay at home moms and they have two or three other kids and they just cannot come up to the NICU until dad gets home or, you know, whatever their routine is. So I, I think knowing that you're doing your best and will be there as often as you can um, is also really important. I always tell parents because they'll say, well, I kind of need to go home because in Denver we get referrals from Wyoming and Nebraska. And I mean, they're mm. very, very far away and no judgment on my part, right? Life happens outside the NICU. Your baby needs to be in the NICU and you need to do your life. And we are happy to have you here as often as you can be here. Mm-hmm. But no judgment on our part if if you have to do your regular life and you can't be here all day. It doesn't make you a good or a bad parent um, depending on how long you sit in the NICU. That has nothing to do with right. how much you love your baby or uh, how good of a parent you're going to be. It just has to do with what your life circumstances are. So. Yes, for sure. Yeah. Well, I am so happy that you agreed to come on the podcast and I'm just really excited to get more of these episodes out and to share everybody's stories. And I'm actively working on the book, um, to get that going as well, which is a little bit harder um, and not quite as easy as the podcast, which I actually thought it would be the opposite. So, um, <laughs> of course, right? Like the thing you think is going to be hard is not as hard. Yes, and the thing you think, thing, thing you think is going to be easy is always ends up being the hardest. But um, I just really appreciate you reaching out and wanting to share your story. Oh, thank you. And I, I love sharing their stories and, you know, especially especially ones that are as long as Eleanor's. <laughs> there are not as many people out there who have had micro preemies that are in there for that long. So right. I'm more than happy to share and love love sharing their progress too. Yeah, no, that's awesome. And I think people need to know that 23-weekers can do well um, and they can have challenges. Even within the doing well, there are still challenges. Yes. But that's the same for any child, right? Like the challenges are just different. Um, yes depending on your on your baby um so yeah i think it's just great thank you very much well thank you for having me absolutely you keep saying it walk no podcast